The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi everybody, Andrew Gormley, CEO of Classic Flyers here. If you're interested in classic aviation and you want to get up close and personal to old aircraft and see some of New Zealand's aviation history, come across the Classic Flyers, Jean Batten Drive, Mount Monganui, right on the edge of the airport. You can go for flights in old aeroplanes like Boeing Stearmans and Harvards. There's lots to see. Kids' parties happening here all the time. We have functions and function rooms, business meetings, and a great cafe with excellent coffee. If you'd like to be involved with Classic Flyers, we also have the volunteer groups who do all things from helping out with function work or just on the main hangar floor with visitors and guests or birthday parties, right through to engineers who get involved in restoring some of our wonderful old aircraft assets. Currently at the moment, we've got a Grumman Avenger being restored and a de Havilland single-seat FB5 Vampire. These things are all part of New Zealand's aviation history. It's a great place and it's in a good location. Come and have a visit. Check out the website on www.classicflyersnz.com Extended Hi, this is Peter Johnson from Aerospace Radio Station Extended and we bring you some of Europe's best guests. He's, he's been something of, of an unsung hero of the American space program outside those who are, have made it their business to become aficionados of it. News. <laughs> some people will call you mad. Some people will call you heroes. Uh, uh, and everyone else is probably somewhere in that spectrum. It's, uh, it's an amazing project to, to pull together from literally from scratch. And views. You've got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and learn from that experience. And that's not an easy thing to do, Peter, learning from your own failure. So why not give us a listen if you want to hear about warbirds, aviation, and the aerospace industry? Come over and give us a visit. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of extended. Extended. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Next up we've got a whole different story and that is aerobatics. And this is Andy Love. Just before I show you a, um, just a wee short promo clip of, uh, of what our members do, um, I'll just give you a very quick intro uh, about myself. Um, big thanks to the RNZF Museum for having us today and Dave for all the work you do. 
it's um, it's inspiring to say the least. It's brilliant. Um, I've only known Dave a few years myself, and um, the passion he puts into aviation preservation, history of preservation within New Zealand is is something else. So, no, it's been great to be involved in a little way. Um, my name is Andrew Love. Um, I um, love flying, love aerobatics, and warbirds since I was a kid. I did my PPL at Canterbury Aero Club through 99 and 2001, um, just funded it part-time while working. Um, commercial uh, a few years later in Queenstown, Wakatipi Aero Club with Carlton Campbell. Um, and I've been competing in aerobatic competitions since uh, 2005. Um, fly a variety of types um, and my goals were always to compete in, um, in competition in the upper categories and to um, fly at air shows and, and, do a bit and get into display flying. Um, so we've been flying the pits special since uh, 2007 on commercial operations in Queenstown. Um, a bit of other commercial flying in the meantime, skydiving, and I continue with aerobatic instructing part-time now um, with another business outside of aviation. Um, I've been volunteering at Woodwards over Wanaka since 2004, um, and I started uh, displaying aircraft on a, a very small uh, role basis in 2012. Um, and at Classic Fighters in more recent years. So, as Dave was saying, I'm the um, yeah vice president of the New Zealand Aerobatic Club, just a volunteer, basically. Um, contest director of um, a competition we run at Omaka underneath the Aerobatic Club umbrella, and a volunteer at the Vintage Aviator. Um, so, just very quickly, um, why aerobatics? Well, in the early days. Um, after World War One, before World War Two, and after World War Two, even in the civilian world, but also in the military, obviously aerobatics and spinning were part of your syllabus to learn to fly. Um, you spun aircraft before you even soloed in most cases, but over the years, aircraft have become more stable and 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 forgiving, and so aerobatic flying and spinning has just sort of slowly been left to the side, um, and it's not really it's, it's seen as an extra part of your flight training these days. That you've got to go out of your way to do if you're a civilian like I am. Um, and it's to give you an idea, um, spinning is only required for an hour um, for your instructor rating, and that's at one hour of spinning, um, which is astonishing, really, when you consider that you know pilots that flew in World War Two, World War One, were spinning aircraft as part before they even soloed. So um, there's repercussions for that um, when you're flying on a normal basis. Um, I've lost a number of friends over the years stuck in terrain um, that didn't understand how to take an aeroplane to the stops and they're not here because of it. Um, yeah, and I was uh, just, so I've never really talked about this, but my uh, inspiration was Richard Hood. Um, I first saw him fly at Wanaka in 94, which was my first show. I was 10, and uh, I saw this pit special, and I just thought, who is that guy? Um, and yeah, he's, he's brilliant. He's a friend of mine now, and it's, it's still a, a big honour to, to do what he does. So I'm just going to play this really short clip just to give you guys a bit of an idea of, of what we do. Um, I'm just going to see if it pops up here. Which one is it? It looks like that one there. Um, this is just a little bit of a compilation of various members in the New Zealand Aerobatic Club, which I'll talk about in just a moment. Uh, doing what we do, having a good time. We've got sound here, Dave. Oh, yeah, I can turn it up on you. Sorry. The video that Andy screened can be watched on the show page for this episode. Go to the show page to see the full video. 
Um, so, so now that everyone's nice and asleep, um, <laughs> um, I'll just talk a little bit about the, uh, the club itself, um, a little bit about the history um, of aerobatic flight, where it all started. Um, it's quite astonishing for those that are, are interested in, in how it all came about. Um, and just a little bit about um, one or two famous, uh, there were a lot of individual aviators that contributed a lot, but just one or two highlights, points I want to make about some um, that made a, a particularly significant impact. And then a little bit about the start of um, the World Championships and, and how it all came about. So um, the club was founded in 84 by a group of enthusiasts um, in the central North Island. Um, the US aerobatics scene is what inspired um, those members to form the club. Um, and um, the national championships were grown at Waipukara, Central Hawke's Bay, from, from 84 to 2014. And since then we've been uh, contesting our nationals at Hood Aerodrome in Macedon. Um, our club is it's a very small organisation. Um, general aviation is, makes up a tiny part of the, the aviation scene worldwide and aerobatics is an even smaller part of that. So we've got some of 200 members. Um, normally there's anywhere from sort of 40 to 50 that are active at any given time all around the country. Um, all sorts of different backgrounds, um, airline pilots, air traffic controllers, um, engineers, flight instructors, builders, property developers and window cleaners even. Um, who love tipping airplanes upside down just purely for the fun of it. So we run the uh, two regional events plus the nationals. So we've got an event in North Shore and at Omaka. Uh, along with the national championships as well. So there's three events around the country. So it's not a huge amount, but we're only a small country, so with limited resources. Um, we fly to international rules, um, and our judges work to an international standard as well. Um, there are five categories, um, ranging from primary through to unlimited. So the first, the lower two categories are, are sort of more entry-level junior classes. You can compete in, in most aerobatic, uh, most aero club aerobatic trainers, and then from intermediate and onwards, you sort of need to start looking at some more heavy machinery for the job. So um, it's all about difficulty factors. So we don't restrict pilot skill level or, or aircraft per class. We limit the difficulty of the manoeuvres in the category. So for example, um, one year at the Nationals, we had a Tiger Moth up against a Giles 202. That purple monoplane there, which is, represents the latest in aerobatic design and the earliest. Well, the Tiger Moth lost by 1% um, because the aeroplanes are limited by the difficulty of the, of the <coughs> category they're flying, which, which keeps it interesting. Um, aerobatic flight started at the very dawn of aviation, so, um, and it was developed right alongside aircraft development, um, literally from the day the Wright brothers first flew. So um, the first air pageant or air race was, was at Reims in 1909, and the first pilot to sort of show an aircraft was recognises Eugene um, Lefebvre. So he was flying a Astra Wright, a license-built Wright flyer. And at that time, flying had only been in existence for five years, and you had aircraft that were barely capable of carrying a man, of course, and making shallow turns. Well, Eugene at the air, at the at Reams decided he'd do what's, what was very close to a max rate turn in, a, in, a, in his Astra Wright. So he had the aeroplane over at a very high angle of bank doing tight turns at very low altitude and people were astonished. They'd never seen anything like it when they'd become used to seeing the box kites and the um, Curtis flyers and whatnot, just about sustaining flight. So he's considered the first sort of showman, if you like, or display pilot, if you will. And from there, people copied him. And there were lots and lots and lots of other um, developments with these early aeroplanes that simply blew people away. 
Well, Eugene became the first casualty. He was the first pilot to die while flying himself. Um, just 10 days after Reims, he was killed when he lost control of his um, Astra Wright. Um, I mean, yeah, so there were, there were a lot of other pilots that sort of duplicated him, and there were a lot of others that were pushing the bounds. And don't forget, these, the, the construction, as many of you know, was, um, was very basic, and, and it was designed to sustain, for aircraft to sustain flight. And all of a sudden, you had guys pulling a lot of G and doing tight turns and constructions that, we, that weren't proven. So it's astonishing looking back to think how courageous they were. Um, it was the next significant moment in, for me was in 1912, uh, Lieutenant Wilford Park of the Royal Navy was the first, believed to be the first to survive a spin, an unintentional spin, uh, which is an auto-rotation in a vertical plane, the aircraft fully still, um, in an Avro 6G cabin. So he was the first to survive one, and he was able to document what he, what he found. And what he found was that the use of opposite rudder to the rotation contribu contributed to the aircraft stopping the spin so he could recover. And it's amazing how early this was discovered with the amount of spin accidents we've had in 100 years. They, it seems that over time spinning became really well known and then it sort of died away and then it came back. Um, I think the challenges we've had is that in the civilian world, in my world, we just don't teach it anymore. Uh, I think the military did a, a, an amazing job in the early days of teaching this sort of stuff but it's just not taught at all now. So it's amazing that that was discovered very early and yet it's been lost at different moments in time. Um, it's not the only aspect of recovering from a spin, but it certainly is the most important. Um, uh, so that was so that all happened, and, and there's still aerobatics was still not really known or recognised at all at this point by 1912, 1913. It was Adolphe Pagul um, flying the Blériot, French pilot, who stepped, who, who was very different from the others. He brought a scientific approach to aerobatics. He was able to explain and document um, the tight turns, vertical climbs, vertical dives. Um, the falling leaf, which you may have, may have seen there in the video. Uh, so he brought a science to aerobatic flight, and he is recognised as the father of aerobatics as we know it today. Um, so he, was, he wasn't the first person to loop an aircraft. He was actually the first person to fly inverted, upside down. It was believed that he rolled inverted and pulled through, pulled through in front of people watching. What actually happened was um, he actually, at altitude, pushed with the Blerio and bunted what we call a bunt over the top and so he actually tucked the aeroplane under like this and with the extra airspeed he was able to half roll out upright in front of the crowd um, and that's one thing in a monoplane today or, or a pit special but in those days and something like that that's, that takes some courage he, he realised he couldn't roll the aeroplane because it had wind warping and rolling's the essence of aerobatics um, so instead of rolling he thought well how do I get upside down so I'm just going to push so he bunted through so it's just astonishing looking back. <laughs> um, and as I say, he was the first to document aerobatics and, and, and the blue, he created the blueprint for what we know today. So the first to loop an aircraft actually happened about nine, ten days later, I believe. Yeah, it was. Um, 2,000 miles away in Russia. Um, Lieutenant Peter Nesterov was the first to loop an aircraft in a Newport 4. Um, and he just, he kind of, he figured out that if he had enough speed and he pitched the aeroplane up coming back on the stick, he might be able to get over the top. And sure enough, he, he, he did that, and uh, so he was the first to loop. So there were a few key moments there that came together. World War One came along, and Adolf Bagul served with the French Air Service, uh, and became, it's believed he was the first ace to shoot down five aircraft, and he was then killed by one of his students, former students, flying for the German Air Service. Um, so that, that didn't end too well for him. 
Um, where am I here? Sorry. Um, the first, um, so after the end of World War One, there was a huge um, excess of aircraft uh, and pilots. And, uh, and so they thought, well, how do we make some money out of this after the end of the, of the conflict? So that's where barnstorming originated first in 1919-1920. Um, aerobatics itself, by this stage, had started to become much more of an art. Uh, rolling, pitching, looping, spinning. Because of combat, because of World War I. Um, so they thought they'd start, let's do aerobatic competition. Let's, let's fly and try and um, better each other. But there were no rules to go with it. So there was no criteria, there was no means of actually establishing who was better than the next person. Um, so while this is all going on in France uh, and in Eastern Europe as well, in America, it all just aerobatics and, and flight in general seemed to die away. Um, it was all the Wright brothers and, um, and Glenn Curtis were in that massive legal battle, which most of us all know about, and it seemed to slow them down the US. It, um, they fell behind and the French and the Russians took over and the Czechs. Uh, and that's created a bit of a um, the theme for even today, um, the US is still playing catch up in modern aerobatic flight. They just the French and the Russians are just in a different league, um, and it's just, it hasn't really changed, which is interesting when you look at the beginning of history. So barnstorming uh, started in the twenties, and these aerobatic competitions. So what they did is they had panel of judges, and they'd have a whole list of pilots and different aircraft, and they'd simply put a performance together, and the judges would just pick what they liked the best and they'd agree on who was the, the winner. So it was sort of a bit mixed up and there was no real way of, of critiquing it. Um, World War II came and uh, after World War II um, they went back to doing what they're doing in the civilian world. Um, interestingly the first um, competition that had a recognised name and a format was the Lockheed Trophy which was established in Britain which is a bit ironic when you think about Britain post-war um, with the um, you know, the bomb damage and disruption, um, austerity and rationing, um, and the lack of enthusiasm. The British, like the Americans, were just not into aerobatics like the French and the Russians were. Uh, but, the, but the Lockheed Trophy was established in, the, in Britain. Um, a bit again to the same rules as pre-war. So, but it got more and more popular, and uh, there were some big names that came out of it. Some big names around the world. There was the Welsh-born Neil Williams, um, who wrote... He, he was one of the few pilots that was able to write as well. And his book, Aerobatics, is still considered the Bible by many. Certainly, that's my favourite reference to, to learning aerobatics. Um, he became famous for... Um, well, he was a very accomplished warbird pilot, but he um, had his limb wing spar collapse on him while performing in the Lockheed Trophy. And uh, quick thinking, the left wing was coming up like this and going back. He just naturally, instinctively rolled to inverted half right upside down and pushed, and the spar came back into place in the zone 526. And then he was suddenly thinking, hang on a minute, how's this going to work out? So he rolled back upright, wing started to um, come back again, rolled back inverted again. And what he did is he then flew away, flew around for about five minutes, burned a little bit of fuel off, assessing his options while the judges on the ground were watching, came in to land, inverted, and he did a half snap roll to upright and flared. And as he did that, the wing came off and he walked away. So the, so the Lockheed Trophy um, was a very big success, um, and during that time was where the first rules became um, used. Uh, a Spaniard by the name of uh, um, Jose um, Oresti came up with this book, this catalogue, with aerobatic manoeuvres in it, and, and everyone thought, oh, that's, that's quite a good idea. So they started using this catalogue, uh, it was called the Oresti catalogue, and it's still used today. And that became the format where the manoeuvres were taken from. Um, 
aerobatics as we know it today and as it is taught today come, is based on four manoeuvres. Um, you have the loop, pitching manoeuvre through 360 degrees, you have the aileron roll, 360 degree rolling um, uh, the aeroplane through a, the, horizon, the horizon, the spin, uh, and the stall turn, which is a vertical climb with a pivot and a vertical dive. So there are literally over 20,000 manoeuvres that come from those four. So, so this was great, so now they had a resty, and what they ended up doing is, um, is implementing that into all competitions that were run under the FAI, FAI umbrella. So the first world, Ch world championships were held in Czechoslovakia in 1960 using these rules, and so they came up with, um, cre uh, with judging criteria based on uh, accuracy of, of a 45 degree line and a vertical line, and it was all about um, the way the aeroplanes perceived to look from the ground. So it doesn't matter how nice it feels in the cockpit or what it feels like, it was all about how the judges saw what you were flying in relation to the criteria they had. And it hasn't changed ever since, it's been the same ever since. Um, with technology uh, and newer aircraft um, that have come out over time, pilots have pushed the, the boundaries uh, to these days where you've got highly sophisticated aircraft and pilots that are flying manoeuvres that just defy all logic and belief. Um, a number of these pilots you'll see at air shows around the world, they do air show schedules and um, competition schedules as well. The World Champs have just happened in, in um, France and uh, the US was second actually overall, they did well this year. Uh, Rob Holland was, uh, I think he was fifth overall for the Americans, which is a, a very good effort. That sounds very patronising, but that's, they just, the French and the Russians have just been that far ahead of everybody else over the years, it's been hard for them to compete. Um, so that was a great result. I'm very passionate about the US aerobatic scene, so it was great to see them do, do a lot better than previously. Um, and the only other thing I was going to talk about was, um, yeah, so, the, um, so the, the biplanes, you sort of saw a mixture of biplanes and monoplanes there. Um, monoplanes first appeared near the beginning, obviously, of, of, of manned flight, but they didn't really do too well initially. The, the best way to build strength into an aeroplane was, was with a biplane. And uh, monoplanes, it surprisingly took a long time to take over the aerobatic scene um, despite that. The Pitt Special was still the best aeroplane to have in competition until the mid-80s. And then it finally lost the edge at the top level. So the monoplanes um, of around the world took over, but the pits you'll still see uh, in the intermediate and advanced categories today. So um, yeah, that was, that was all I was really going to talk about, to be honest. Just a bit of a history on, on how the club works and things. And, um, and how the industry has changed and how the scene has changed over the years, but um, the history is quite extensive and it, 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 it astonishes me massively to think, to, to see the experimentation that went on to just, they didn't really know what they were trying to achieve, they were just thinking, wow, this is cool, we can roll, we can bank, we can pitch. Um, and, uh, and, it, and it is a lot of fun depending on, you know, you don't have to compete to enjoy it and get benefit out of it. Um, I'd say I encourage a lot of my students not to feel like they have to do a full 10 hour course or pay for you know, a, a huge amount of hours, they can uh, do a couple of sword heads and, and learn and get a lot of benefit for their own flying. Um, so that's our club's goal. The club isn't a uh, training establishment, it is a club. Um, there are a number of us that do teach that are within that organisation, but what we sort of see ourselves as is a bit of a vessel to point people in the direction um, of learning aerobatics if that's what they want to do, depending where they are around the country. So. Um, yeah, it's a lot of fun and um, hopefully we could do it for a few more years yet, so um, any questions I'll be happy to try and answer them. Sorry? Uh, that was a Zlin 526. Yeah, so it was a, a, a all-metal monoplane.
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a lot of, um, it, yeah, there's, there's a lot going on with an aeroplane with, with a lot of positive G's put on it, and um, it's it's not just positive G, it's also um, rolling G when the aircraft's rolled and pitched at the same time, and I don't think that, that there was a lot, there was some stuff that wasn't quite as well understood, and you've got these aircraft were not sophisticated um, aerobatic trainers like we have now, and, uh, and but Structural failures are extremely rare. Um, I don't think there's actually been a certified aircraft have a structural failure in a competition, um, and certainly our safety record is absolutely impeccable uh, around the world. Most of the, most of the accidents or incidents you'll hear about are actually air shows or air show training. Um, the competition pilots um, have got a, a very high standard. Yeah. Common practice to wear parachutes when you're Yeah, it is. Um, so in the US, it's compulsory. Absolutely compulsory, um, and certainly in uh, I think a number of training and a number of schools in uh, Fra in France and in Western Europe, it is also compulsory. It's not compulsory in New Zealand to wear a shoe. Uh, a number of the guys in our club that fly their own aeroplane, single seaters, do wear them. Um, but a lot of the aero club trainers, um, and certainly the two seaters that I fly or have been flying, we, we don't. Um, the single, sorry. It's reassuring, but I, I wouldn't want to put a parachute, uh, jump out of an aeroplane at 800 feet. So, um, yeah, so it, yeah, it, it certainly is an option for sure, and it is good to have it. And the single seater that I will be flying in the future, I will be wearing a shoe for sure. But uh, as I say, it's um, it's not a it's not a um, structural failure that's likely to have a problem. It's an engine failure that you're going to have issues with. It's probably going to catch you out. And most people, I don't want to talk on behalf of anybody, but most situations you try and land it, I think. And that's part of the reason why we do all our training uh, and competitions over airfields. One less thing to think about. You know you've got a runway there. If something's not right, you can always get down. So. Um, no, he didn't shoot on. He's too low. Yeah, too low. So, and he, he, I don't think he had time to react. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I look cheeky and ask kind of a two-part question. Sure. Um, what is your, a normal season look like? Is it seasonal flying up the competition or are you pretty much flying consistently throughout the year? It depends on the individual uh, with their resources and their own schedules. Um, I guess I fly year round. Um, I do most of my uh, training with, with other students during the winter and then I focus on my own stuff in the, in the spring and summer. But I do, I do fly all year round so a lot of the guys don't. They are more of a summer, seasonal summer thing. Um, I think in North America it's it's definitely seasonal. They get a lot of snow in the north, and and so they a lot of the guys will actually just that's it. They'll sort of close the doors and they'll be doing maintenance and checking aeroplanes and stuff. Um, it depends on the individual schedule. Yeah. And the other part I was interested in is um, what's kind of a day in the life at competition like. Um, it's a huge amount of fun. So you've got a lot of um, different pilots, a lot of different people from different backgrounds, and everyone's there for the fun of it. Um, there's no money involved. Um, I said there's no money involved, there's a lot of money involved, there's no money to be competed for. So you've got a lot of guys that are just, and, and gals too, that are just really passionate about aerobatics. So um, we have a very structured program with briefings in the morning. It's all done um, to the way the international rules and regulations are run. So we have briefings in the morning, uh, we have a schedule during the day. Um, in each category, um, each pilot will fly a s several different sequences and that's all pre-organised and programmed into the, the schedule and all the pilots know what they're flying and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, it's not a, an air show per se. It's it's a competition. Uh, we do do an air show segment, which is kind of a, it's a competition based on the old days. Actually, it's about 
um, smoke and the wow factor and all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, you'll just see airplanes um, in and out of the aerobatic box, uh, the aerobatic area above the aerodrome, uh, which is quite quite small. It's a thousand by a thousand metres, uh, and up to three and a half thousand. And the lower limit depends on the category. And the airplanes are just coming in and out during the day. At Marston and Endo Endo Market, we do get a lot of interest from local locals coming out to have a look. Uh, a lot of airplanes, saw in the video, uh, you don't see every day. Um, they're bright and coloured and, and and just different from what you normally see. So. Uh, it does attract a bit of interest, but um, we don't charge people to come and watch. It's it's just a, you know, just a competition really. Um, and it's we've found at um, the Wairarapa Aero Club and, and, and Mulberry Aero Club, it's been a lot of fun uh, working with these aero clubs to try and encourage their members to get involved as well. Um, the Young Eagles in particular. So you'll see a lot of involvement, uh, particularly at the Omaka competition which I run. Um, we get the young eagles involved and get them around the aeroplanes and some of the guys have got two-seaters and they'll take them flying and that kind of stuff. So it is a, it is a lot of fun. It's just celebrating aviation. Yeah. Cool. What do you want? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the hundred over the the Vintage Aviator. Yeah. That won the 1922 World Champ. Yeah. That's why that was something modern now would be kind of cool. Historic, isn't it? Yeah. Well, that's that's the um, that's the um, the the neat thing with the rules we run to is that you know you just don't, don't get intimidated by the guy next year with what airplane he's flying in because if he's in your class, your the flying you do is limited to the cat to the difficulty of that sequence. So the Henry O, like in theory, if that flew against a a Tiger Moth or a Giles um, in the primary uh, category, um, it's actually if the pilot knows the aeroplane well, he's got a good chance. Um, and that's the, it's all about the, the skill level of the pilot and how, the, how to get the most out of the aeroplane they have. Um, here at the Canterbury Aero Club we've got a, uh, a Robin and over the years it's been at the competitions with a number of different pilots and it's consistently um, taken on and beaten a lot of other far better aircraft and that comes down to the Pilots flying it and the understanding. So um, yeah, something like the handrail, that's a stunning machine. That could uh, conceivably beat something that's, that's significantly newer because of the way we run our rules. Mm. So what are you currently flying in the uh, competition? Oh, mainly the pits. Um, I've done a little bit of competition flying on a Tiger Moth as well, um, but mainly the pit special. Yeah, so, so when you go vertical, yeah, you're always in control. Because what, what you're actually doing is, um, it, the, the technique, the, the mindset you've got is actually very similar to the issue flying. You're actually not thinking where you are now, you're already two or three manoeuvres ahead. And so you're already, you're already, while you're obviously monitoring your height and gate speeds the whole time, you're actually two or three manoeuvres ahead. You're actually already thinking where the aeroplane's going to be in 30 seconds time. So it's actually very mechanical and it is all 100% under control. Yeah. Yeah. Where people get unstuck, I believe, and I'm, I'm only very new to um, airshow flying, is with the aerobatic side of it, is they do unscripted stuff. They throw something in, they decide at the last minute, oh, I'm just going to do this, and it goes wrong because they haven't practiced it. Yeah, or there's a variation in, in, in the weather um, and the performance of the aeroplane's not quite where it was in practice. Um, or they just bust their, low, their lower limits and keep going, that kind of thing. Um, so you're always in control. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool.
Very good. Thanks for giving me. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.